Thank you so much, Chun, for leading us in our service. Thank you, Doris, and our musicians for singing, always from the bottom of our hearts, leading us in our services. So what's a, what's a church service? A church service is a, is a gathering of God's people, and a gathering of God's people has one main aim. A gathering of God's people, a service, is an encounter with God. And you may be asking yourself, in what ways do we encounter God? We encounter God by encountering Him in His Word. The listening to God's Word is a spiritual experience. So thank you all for joining us in our service, and we pray that you're blessed, whether you're here physically, on-site, or we are joining us virtually. We are walking through learning humbly from God's Word in the book of Exodus. Let's begin by addressing this. That life is a series of questions and answers. And different questions for different times, different questions for different seasons. I guess question for this season of pandemic would be, have you had your vaccination? Which jab have you had? The first, the second, the booster? At least that's for us in Singapore. Or could you ask, why have you not had your vaccination? These are important questions for us to be asking. And then we ask questions, not just seasonal questions, but we need to ask more pertinent questions in life. Pertinent questions, right? Story is told of a relative, and as part of her extended family, she had this wonderful relative, generous guy, good guy, right? wonderful son to his parents, but he had, a, he had a weakness. And what was his weakness? He was an Indian man, but he had a weakness for bakute. For those who are listening to this from overseas, this is a Chinese dish. And basically, it's just um, pork bones, soup made from pork bones. Very delicious, very salty. And he, he fell in love with this dish. And he, in one sense, couldn't stop eating it. His parents were okay for, for, for him to like this dish, except that they found that he was eating this more and more, how frequently it began with just once a week and then a few times a week, and then it began, and it's rolled on to every day. And they tried to stop him. And why can't you eat other things? Do you know that too much of anything is not good for you? And none of this question resonated with him until, until tragically he had a heart attack and died. And in the post-mortem, multiple blockages that led to his heart attack. Questions in life are rather important. Parent to an overactive child, parent to an ADHD child may ask, when are you going to stop running around like crazy, like there's no dangers around you? Don't you see there's a glass thing in front of you that you just... You ask the question, the child doesn't listen until they run into that glass door. And then they get very hurt. A spouse to a drink challenge husband. When you, gonna, you came clean the last few months, but you're still vulnerable. But when are you going to stop hanging around your buddies? Hear the local word, a Malay word. When are you going to hang around? When are you going to stop hanging around your khakis? For when you hang around your khakis, they, they're going to influence you back to, to drink. Don't worry, I'll be okay. Before long, he plunges back into his drunkenness. Child to parent, stop worrying about me, Dad. Stop worrying about me, Mum. I've grown up. 
I've learned to be responsible. But dad and mom can't stop worrying because this child has had a track record of being irresponsible in life. They worry so much, they worry so much, and worry so much till dad died of anxiety. Questions in life, very important. Questions for stubborn people run along these lines. Okay, let's see whether this comes on. Yeah. Questions for stubborn people, fallen people. Is when will we finally see clearly? When will we finally listen humbly? When will we finally need the XXX or the XYZ in life that is going to clear you up, straighten you up, clean you up? Is there any difference if we were to ask these questions as believers in God, as followers of Jesus? Is there any difference if we added God to the questions of life and questions for stiff-necked people of God? When will we, see, when will we finally see God? When will we finally listen to God's Word and obey Him and walk by faith and not by sight? When will we finally need the person of God and the rescue of God and the redemption of God? All those questions are being asked when we come to Exodus 32. And we call this the dark side of the golden calf. But before we plunge in to understand this really disappointing, this heartening, heartbreaking experience between God and His beloved chosen people, His beloved covenant people, between a covenant God and a covenant people, you know, covenant just means covenant, marriage is a covenant, and this is the early rep representation of God's love for His people, finally fulfilled in Jesus as bridegroom to His bride. If you do not know anything about covenant love, is a husband and wife pledged by the grace of God that they will love each other to the exclusion of all others. Covenant love is a love, a love between two parties willingly to the exclusion of all others. They draw a tight circle around them, not a circle with dotted lines allowing for the possibility of others to step into the exclusive love to the exclusion of all others. This is the love relationship that God calls His people to. So to understand the book of Exodus is the second book of the Bible. It's about the love story of God for His people, for His stubborn people, for His stiff-necked people. And what do we see here? Exodus in two halves. Exodus in two halves. Let me go backwards. Oops. Next one. The first 18 chapters is how God redeemed them from slavery to Pharaoh. And why have I put their slavery to idolatry? Because Pharaoh is the symbol, the representation of men, the prowess of men ruling men. The prowess of our worldviews, the prowess of our man-made empires, and from our man-made empires comes prosperity, from man-made uh, empires come peace. This is us ruling ourselves. But in that world, in that world, the views and values of that world, ruled by man, will always lead to oppression. And so God hears the cries of His people as they live under the oppression of Pharaoh. He hears the cries of his people. He remembers his covenant with them. 
made with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, their forefathers, and then he reaches out to rescue them in the Exodus event. And you read about that in Exodus 12 to 14, the Passover. He rescued them to sing a song, and from chapter 15 to chapter 18, it's all about journeying to Mount Sinai, the entry into the Promised Land. But God's love story, His redemption story for them, has a second part. Not just redeem from, but redeem for. Redeem for, from slavery to self, our man-made world of paradise, and redeem for the worship of God. God's idea of paradise. When God rules us. So that's one way to understand the two halves. The outline of the second half of Exodus takes us from God's covenant that He made in Exodus 19. And from the covenant came the law. And so there are grace to obey the law of God, grace to be holy, grace to keep the holy ways of God. And so Exodus 20 to 23, the law and the stipulations, the blueprint and the fine print of what it means to be a holy person, saved by a holy God in an exclusive love relationship with Him. And then this covenant is confirmed, formalized here in our singlish, not in our English, our singlish say double confirmed. This covenant is double confirmed by blood, B-Y, not B-U-Y. Sorry, there's a mistake there. And then from that point onwards, the tabernacle instructions. To understand what's happening here, we always need to understand every passage in its context. And so, why do we call this the dark side of the golden calf? It's the dark side of the golden calf because in chapters 25 to 31, God gives detailed instructions about what? Detailed instructions about this thing, this new thing in Israel's life that is to be set smack in the middle of the 12 tribes, the tabernacle. You take away the tabernacle, Israel will not be able to be God's people. The utter necessity of the tabernacle. So instructions for the tabernacle, instructions for approaching God, instructions for the worship of God. And then chapters 35 to 40 is the implementation of the tabernacle. They'll go forth and build the tabernacle. But sandwiched in between is a very sad story of the people building a golden calf. And what's that? That's the disruption of worship. And why is that important? Why is that important? The whole account could have gone straight from instructions for worship, as in the tabernacle, to implementation for worship. But something stops the, mute, the exclusive love of Israel for God. And so, with that background, we can understand this. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to Aaron, Up, make us gods, plural, who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Very instructive. And so they are triggered to idolatry. They are triggered from the worship of God, their fidelity to God, to idolatry. So what triggers them as you look at this? What triggers them is quite obvious. 
that Moses was late in coming back, coming down from the mountain where he had a one-to-one with God. The holy God choosing who should approach him on his terms. That's the definition of worship. And so was this God's slowness? Was this Moses' delay? Or was this the people's impatience? You always need to ask, what triggered you to disobedience against God? What triggered you? Actually, I've just jumped. If you follow this, firstly it begins with doubting God. And then from doubting God will come the disobedience to God. So what leads you on this path that leads finally to full-blown idolatry? And basically they're asking in the first few verses that's there, you know the God who promised to go before us, He will always be with us? The God who promised to be present with us, Israel, is now absent. The, the, the God and His chosen servant who promised to be with us and go before us is now absent and absent for a long time. The God who promised, but in reality, He promised presence, but in reality is absent. What, makes, what questions do you need to ask? You need to ask questions of integrity. Where is the integrity of God? And where is the integrity of His servant? Where is the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of His servant Moses? Where is the fidelity of God? Where is the love and the loyalty of God to us, His people and His promises? But then we need to ask deeper questions as we read beneath the surface. And the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, very, very dangerous whenever you have a leader, leaderless collection of people. People without a leader will often take things into their hands. People without a leader will often lead to anarchy. God was their leader. God was their king. He led them out of Egypt so that they would worship him. Everything about the tabernacle. You know, the tabernacle had a fence, a fence 150 feet long, 75 feet wide. And you put it all together, about 11,250 feet. It had 60 pillars of bronze. And on top of the bronze pillars, it had silver. But what was this fence? It was a curtain fence. And when you read the instructions from last week and understand it, the curtain fence would have colours of purple. It would have colours of royalty and divinity. It would have cherubim on the curtains. And whenever Israel entered from the outside to the outer court, to the holy of holy, to the holy place, to the holy of holies, the metals turned from bronze to silver to gold. That the metals used, the preciousness of the metal reflected the holiness of God. Israel always had to know when she entered the tabernacle, she was entering to worship royalty. She was worshipping royalty. And how does she worship Yahweh as God? She worshipped Yahweh as God by obeying His word. That's why the heart of the tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant that contained the tablets. You enter to worship royalty and divinity. God, Yahweh, rules you as king. That's why the Ark of the Covenant was there. 
be aware of this. So when they say to Aaron, up, get up, make us gods who shall go before us, as for this Moses, in some versions, literally, as for this fellow Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. I've underlined no, you know. Because if you read Exodus with some care, they go from a people, right? God sends Moses to them. And Moses basically says, I do not know you. And God says to Moses, you will know me. I am who I am. Then you go and tell my people. And the people will say to Moses, I don't know this God. They will know me. And then you go and tell Pharaoh. And Pharaoh will say, I don't know your God. Soon he will know you through the ten plagues. It's all about knowing God. For them to say, with spiritual amnesia so early, we do not know what has become of God's servant, is their way of saying, we do not know what is God's intention of for us. Is it the integrity of God and His servant Moses which was at stake? Or was it the depravity of the people? It's begging the question. The answer is very clearly, it's the depravity of the people. And it goes on in verse 3. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And Aaron saw this. He built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow there shall be a feast to Yahweh the Lord. Sounds like this is for the worship of Yahweh. And they rose early the next morning and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. Sounds very much like it's a festivity to the Lord. But the last part tells you, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, literally rose up to indulge. That's the Hebrew word that is there, sahak. So beware the recipe for idolatry. The question that is on view is not the integrity of God and God's servant Moses. The question that is on view is the fidelity of God's people. The recipe for disobedience against God, you and I must note in our life, from the Old to the New Testament, whenever God is a little bit slow in responding to us and our questions of life and our problems of life and our pain in life and our brokenness in life, God's seeming delay, our impatience, and when you add the two things, God is slow, we are impatient, God stands in the way of our fulfilment. He said we are going to the promised land. That's the fulfilment of His promises. Where is He? Where is His servant? He's slow, the servant is delayed, and we are impatient. That is not integrity of God. At stake. What is at stake? Is our own depravity. Is our own depravity, our own impatience. So beware our own depravity. God's delay and people's impatience will soon lead you to accuse God and accuse God's servant of malevolence, big word, of bad intentions. They had already done this very early on. 
in Exodus chapter 15, did you lead us out here simply to die of thirst? Then it rolls on in chapter 16. Did you lead us out here only to die of hunger? Did you lead us out here? We, we were better off in Egypt. So the accusation against God's leaders is ex, ex, actually an accusation against God himself. It's a very serious business, princesses in Christ. Family and friends, visitors, to accuse God in your thoughts of ill will, of bad intention. That God has any bad intention against you, Chun. That God has any bad intention against you, Michelle. That God has any bad intention against you, Joe. That God has any bad intention against you. You accuse God and Moses of malevolence. They did. So you ask from this few first few verses, whose heart was being examined? Whose heart is being exposed? They thought they had every right to question and examine the heart of God and Moses. But it's their heart that needs examination. It is their heart that is being exposed. So God's response to the people. And the Lord said to Moses, You go down. For your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. So notice, I bold the words, your people. What is God beginning to do in response to the people's depravity leading to their idolatry, their impatience leading to their infidelity? The Lord said to Moses, I've seen these people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. You see God here distancing himself from his beloved people, whom he mercifully, graciously redeemed from hundreds of years of slavery to the man-made idolatry of a paradisical world, of man-made empires, of the full life and the good life. He distanced himself, but there's a very strange phrase. Now, therefore, let me alone. You read different comment commentators and commentaries, they give you different things. But this one is not too bad, and I paraphrase this scholar and this commentary. Right. This is not simply an instruction from God to Moses to leave him alone. As if God needs some downtime, God needs to run into a man cave. No, God doesn't run to a man cave. As if God needs to run to a God cave, right? To detox himself from very toxic people, his people. What could be on view here is not simply an instruction to Moses to leave him alone, but an invitation for Moses to play his role. And what is the God-given role to Moses? known or unknown to him, that he is mediator between the holy God and his unholy people. And part of his mediatorial role is to intercede for the people. The people themselves can never enter into a relationship with God, let alone maintain and blossom and grow and flourish in that relationship with God. Because they are so prone to, they are so prone to sin, 
I'm told in the 40 chapters of Exodus, in the first 31 chapters, the word sin appears 10 times in the first 31 chapters. But from chapters 34 to 34, the word sin appears 11 times in three chapters, and most of them are found in 32. There was no way Israel could ever have self-rescued, self-redeemed, and made herself eligible, qualified to be God's holy people. There was no way she was going to initiate that relationship. There was no way she was going to keep that relationship. In short, Israel had to realise there's everything within her that made her an unfaithful covenant partner. And apart from God setting up the tabernacle system that would include the priesthood, and now in the person of Moses, that part of the relationship with God always needs a mediator. It's something that they need to understand. We will sin, we will be unfaithful to Yahweh, and we will need Yahweh's way to save us. So this is not so much an instruction to be alone, but an instruction, but an invitation for Moses to step up and play his role. And Moses does. When you read this portion from verse 10 onwards, right? the Lord said to Moses, you go down from verse 9 onwards, I've seen these people, the Lord said, they are stiff-necked. Moses, what did he do? He pleaded three things he did. And to summarize what he did, it was this. Did I get this wrong? Moses' intercession with God. Don't forget God. It is you who brought them out. You were personally, directly in love with them. You were personally and directly involved in intervening and rescuing them. What about your reputation? If you did this to your people, if you punish your people and you wipe them out, what about your reputation among the Gentiles, among the pagans, among the Egyptians? And have you forgotten? Have you forgotten your covenant, O God? That is at the heart of what he says here. And Moses' response, as he soon came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf. Calf is a young bull. Young bull, in many of the nations, was a symbol of fertility, a symbol of virility, a symbol of fertility, virility, and prosperity. He threw the tablets out of his hands and broke, the foot at, and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made, and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it in the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Hard to understand. But could it be God's way of telling His people, you really want to swap from the worship of the true and the living God to the idolatry of your man-made imagination and your man-made hands? That your man-made imagination and your man-made idols can give you identity, security in life? You really don't want to swap the worship of Yahweh for the idolatry of your man-made idols? 
then drink it. Then internalize this. Then know the seriousness of what you're doing. Initially, did you notice? It was Yahweh who burned hot with anger. Moses interceded against that. But as Moses comes down the mountain and he hears and then he sees what they're doing, he burns hot with anger. So I ask you to observe, right? Who becomes more like who? God becomes more like Moses or Moses becomes more like God? Who is becoming more like who? Moses, at least in this part, is understanding that for this, God cannot compromise His holiness. God cannot drop, drop His standards of justice. When He invites people to come to know Him, Israel is not as if He's a desperate God. He's just desperate for anybody. He, where's the supply? I'm offering you an invitation. He doesn't drop His standards. It's sinners must be made holy by God's way of atonement. It is God's rescue. It is God's redemption at the heart of this. And the tabernacle tells them, as they walk in, right, from the outer court to the inner court to the Holy of Holies, you're walking in gradations of sinfulness to gradations of holiness. No one approaches the holy God without being struck dead by His holiness. Israel needs to know that. That's why the instructions in Exodus 25 to 31 are so, hey, so precise, right? So precise because we have a God who is so perfect. So exacting because we have a God who is so exacting in His perfection, in His holiness. There we approach Him. There we claim to know Him. There we worship Him without knowing his exacting standards of holiness. Israel must never forget that. The tabernacle system is to remind them of this week by week. Six days you shall labour. On the seventh day, when you come and do this, please do not forget, God, Yahweh is not just provider. Yahweh is not just protector. Yahweh is redeemer. The God who redeemed you to worship Him. He's a holy God. So keep that Sabbath holy. Holy unto God. Moses responds. And then Aaron's explanation. When Moses confronts Aaron, right, his right-hand man, as it were, as he went up, Moses, to meet God, Aaron was left with the people. And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot, you know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any of you who have gold take it off. And they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. So what was Aaron's explanation? Would you call this, in precise language, an explanation? Or would you call this, more precisely, an excuse? What was Aaron's abrogation of his leadership duties, his leadership ministry? He gave four reasons. You know the people. 
they are set on evil. For they said to me, it's not my word to them, it's their word to me. We do not know what has become of him. It's actually about you, Moses. So it's them, it's you. Then because of this confluence of factors, these top three factors, the people are evil, they made a request, you were delayed in coming, what am I to make of this? Out came the calf. <laughs> it sounds like this is a miraculous festival. You don't have any miracles from idolatry. The only ever miracles when you worship Yahweh. And this is the consistent thing that we have taught here. And the acronym that we use here in Singapore, HDB, refers to one of our uh, government ministries, right? the Housing Development Board that builds state-of-the-art, world-class public housing right? that wins awards around the world. But HDB for us in Singapore can be used as whenever we encounter sin as we saw in Eve in the Garden of Eden, whether it's personally or collectively, we like to hide, we like to deny, and we like to blame. And you see that in Aaron. But God doesn't allow him to wriggle his way out of this. You're not going to give me four lame excuses. And the four lame excuses do not add up to one glorious explanation of what happened to the people under your watch. You may have many excuses, right? but they do not explain away your sin. You want to take note of that? You may have many excuses in your life to sin in thought and word and deed. You may have many excuses to sin relationally, sexually. But no matter how many excuses you come up with, you still have no excuse when we sin against God. We can hide, deny and blame all that we want. And so how does this end? Then he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Remember, this is a repeated phrase. You either go for Israel idolists by thus says the Lord or thus says Pharaoh. Or here, thus says ourselves. They gathered among themselves leaderless. They usurped Aaron's authority over them. And then they did this. And God says to them, you put your sword on your side, each of you, and you go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbour. There will be punishment. And this is how God punishes. Are the 3,000 people here, the ringleaders of that rebellion, could be? Did it include some Levites? Don't know. Some scholars think so. But the point is not lost on us. You sin against God, please, please know one thing. There is no such thing as sinning without repercussion. There is no such thing as disobedience without penalty. We can't go on forever. Accusing God of malevolence, accusing His servant of malevolence, when really it was the malevolence of our own heart against God. It was our own malevolence that doubted God's delay. It was our own malevolence that our impatience make us take things into our own hands. Have you not seen this pattern before? Each of the four patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, especially Abraham, right? Whenever he intervened, he waited so long for God's blessing to be fulfilled. He waited 25 years. And every time they tried to raise ahead and take things into their own hands, 
God always said, no, I, I, I didn't say you would have this child to, to Hagar. I said you have this child to Sarah. It sounds very alike, but please don't run ahead of God. This is how, this is, these are the repercussions of disobedience. How does it end? He said to them, right? So the dark side of the golden calf, what happens when you read the end? When you read the end, we find Moses interceding a second time. And now Moses' intercession, right? His heart for God and his heart for the people, his heart for God, his heart for the people. He says, they have sinned, oh God. There's no denial. Let me atone for their sin. And God says, no. This is, there is such a thing as collective responsibility. There's such a thing as the individuality of sin and the individual responsibility of sin. You can't atone for them. You will not atone for them. And it says the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf that Aaron had made. And some say it's not chronological. That when did God really strike them with a the plague after the second intercession? Or was this a summary of God had already punished them by killing off the 3,000? The point remains... Sin against God has its repercussions. So we end our time. Instructions for acceptable worship in chapters 25 to 31. Implementation of acceptable worship, 35 to 40. What is chapters 32 to 34? It's Israel's attempt at self-redemption. The making of the golden calf totally opposite to six chapters of God telling them, this is how you worship me. Immediately after six chapters of precise details of this is how you worship the holy God, this is how, this is how you leave your sinfulness and walk into the holiness of God, they take things into their own hands and think that we can self-rescue and we can self-redeem. And God says, no way. Could you, this whole thing not have gone straight from chapter 31, which ends with the instructions to celebrate the Sabbath, and then chapter 35 that begins these whole inst instructions, when they build the temple, it's the Sabbath, it could have gone directly. But it's there to do what? Don't you dare ever think, don't you ever dare think that you can rescue yourself and worship God on your own terms. So when will they finally see God? When will they finally listen to God? When will they finally need God and need God's way of rescue for Israel temporarily through the, temporarily through the tabernacle system and then more permanently through the temple system? But the whole temple system right, of priests, of sacrifice, of atoning for their sin, cleansing them, then consecrating them to God, fell flat. And finally, Jesus comes as what? As perfect priest, as perfect sacrifice, as perfect temple, the permanent dwelling of God with His people. Which leads us to ask, when will we finally see God? We finally see God in Jesus. When will we finally listen to God's word? 
we finally hear God's word in the person and work of Jesus. Coming to die on the cross for us, to turn God's wrath away from us. And when will we finally need God? We finally need God not simply in His revelation, but His redemption in Jesus. If you have another way to get out of sin, to turn away from God's wrath, to give you the free and full worship of God, access to the free worship of God, then you don't need this. You don't need Jesus and the cross. You don't need Jesus and the cross. You know, one thing I do for my own spiritual and mental well-being is that I've always worked with music in the background. And you heard a little bit of that. And I, by God's grace, chance upon this site, beautiful music for worship. And then, how many people tune into this? Let me just see how many people tune in. 19 million people listen to this peaceful moments of worship. Words in between, music there. I just read some of the comments as they listened to the gospel in song. My mum was murdered in November by her boyfriend. My grandmother is in coma. And the woman I was madly in love with during that time that was helping me cope told me she didn't love me anymore. Wow, I recently gave my life to Christ and I listened and I'm experiencing all this. I'm broken. I cry to the Lord. What's happening? Tears fall down my face. But here's the punchline for this person. But I know the Lord will make all this make sense to me in the end. This person who is listening to this Christian music, to the gospel in song, what do you think this person is saying? No matter how bad it gets, I'm not going to take things into my own hands. I'm not going to try to, try to self-understand this and self-rescue myself. Yes, it's bad. Then I read further down. Right further down. And my name is Alina. I'm 16 years old. I've been, I've been dealing with the worst depression to the point of suicide. I've been a believer of Jesus for about two years. I never thought when I first believed in Jesus that I was capable of hurting myself to think of suicide. I have received so much support through family and friends. My deepest darkness, I left God out of the equation. But through the support of family and friends, they kept reminding me that God is faithful, that Jesus is Lord. I'm not going to try hurting myself and killing myself anymore. What do, you, what do you think this teenager is saying? The same thing as the first one. I'm not going to go back and try to self-redeem and self-rescue. As long as you have your own way to get out of sin, you will never see God clearly in Jesus. You will never listen to God humbly in Christ and the cross. You will never need, desperately need Jesus for every moment of your life through the ups and the downs. So as we end our time, these are the questions you need to ask. They are not seasonal questions. They are questions no matter what the season of life is. Have you reflected 
how not to sin against God? Have you reflected deeply how not to provoke God to anger? Have you reflected deeply how not to move from your depravity, from your impatience, to accusing God and accusing God's people, God's servants? Have you thought of ways how to avoid sinning against God and God's wrath? On the other hand, how hard are you thinking of what it means to please God, to love His Word, to love holiness, to love not taking things into your own hands? You know, the five Gs that we have for our building project at ARPC at Tenga, God's work done God's way in God's time for God's glory will never lack a supply. All five elements, all five factors have to be there. God's work must be done God's way in God's time. Sometimes you do God's work, it's not God's way. It won't glorify Him. Sometimes you do God's work, it's God's way, but it's not God's time. It doesn't gel, it doesn't fly. There's a time and season for everything, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And it must always be for God's glory, not simply for your happiness, not simply for your pain-free life. It's for God's glory. Then it will never lack His supply. And God's ultimate supply is Jesus loving you, dying for you, rising for you, interceding for you, that you remain holy and blameless. And so may we challenge ourselves here both in ARPC and anywhere that you are tuning into this around the world. Dare we enter into God's presence without soul-searching confession. Dare we enter into God's presence through Christ without heartfelt repentance. Maybe that's what we need to do. Maybe those are the questions we need to ask ourselves instead of asking glibly, lightly, self-centeredly, when will all things fall into place for me? For my happiness, we should ask the question, when will all things fall into place for me? Not for my happiness, but for my holiness, for your glory. We're going to pray together. We're going to sing this closing song that reflects that previously we were really hell-bent on our own way, but by the grace of God, we now are intent to worship the Holy God His way. No self-rescue, no self-redemption, only rescued and redeemed by Christ. Let's pray together. May we come to you with soul-searching confession. May we always approach you, our holy God, with heartfelt repentance. May we try to answer. When will we finally see you clearly? When will we listen to you humbly? When will we need you and your only way of redemption? That there's nothing within each of us personally and all of us collectively as a fallen, sinful human race to make ourselves right with you to turn your rightful wrath away from us. Save us from our own efforts. Save us from our golden calves. 
save us through Christ and Christ alone. In his mighty name we pray. Amen.